Welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God. Uh, it's a joy to have you with us, members and guests. I invite you to turn in God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. Let's hear God's word together. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light... Believe in the light that you, may become, that you might become sons of light. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess this morning that you are the giver of every good gift. We thank you, Lord, for the food that you put on our tables day after day, for a roof over our head, for our family, for the gift of friendship, for sunlight, for trees, for all the pleasures of creation. We give thanks to you, Father, the giver of every good gift. And we give thanks to you, Father, supremely for the gift of your son, Jesus. There is no more that you you could have given to us and for us and our salvation than you gave in giving Jesus. We thank you for the gift of a Savior. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not withhold even your life, but freely offered your life for ours that we might be reconciled to God. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of life, even at the cost of yours. And as we contemplate your generosity, your self-renunciation for our good, Lord, we confess our selfishness. So often, Lord, it's more about what we want. It's about maximizing our comfort and pleasure rather than serving you and serving others. This morning, we freely, freely confess our selfishness, the tendency that we have to put ourselves first. Father, we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would forgive us for our selfishness. We ask that you would transform us so that we are increasingly living for you and for others. Enlarge our hearts that we might reflect the generosity, 
the self-renunciation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do this in our midst, we pray. Use your word this morning as a means to that end, we ask. Amen. Uh, so I was recently watching a, a TV show where there was this young woman who found herself unexpectedly pregnant. It's a crisis. She didn't know what to do. So she goes to the wisest woman in the show, the older woman, who's life experience, and she, the younger woman goes for counsel. And the older woman says, well, what do you want to do? Terminate the pregnancy. What do you think is going to be best for you? And know that whatever you choose, I will support you 100%. Fundamentally, the question is, what do you want? What do you want out of life? Decide that and act accordingly. What intrigued me was the fact that I think it really exemplifies a modern way of thinking about the self. Uh, Intriguingly, the question was not, what does God say about this issue? What does the creator say? What does the Bible say? What do the moral authorities of the past and present say about this issue? All of that is disregarded, and the key question is, what do I want? Or rather, what, what do you want? What's good for the self? For so many modern people, the self is king. Life is about self-realization, uh, self-fulfillment, self-actualization. It's all about the self. And anything that gets between you and self-fulfillment needs to be rejected. Marriage vows, marriage covenants, if they get between you and self-fulfillment, so much the worse for the covenant that we've made before God and others. Uh, if people, relationships, circumstances get between us and self-fulfillment, the, the wisdom of our age is Do whatever it takes to get rid of the obstacle between you and self-expression, self-fulfillment. Well, the teaching of Jesus in the passage that we're looking at this morning is the precise opposite of that. Jesus calls us not to put ourselves first and, uh, you know, to use a cliche in our world, you be you, right? That's not the wisdom of Christ. The wisdom of Christ is the path of self-denial in service to him. And the paradox is that as we die to self, we find true life. As we renounce the claims of self, we discover life as it was meant to be lived. That's the teaching of our Lord. We'll look at three things this morning. First, the call to self-denial. Second, Christ's self-denial. And third, the result of Christ's self-denial. So, the call to self-denial. Here's the situation. Uh, Jesus and his apostles are in Jerusalem uh, on the eve of this, the celebration of the Feast of Passover. Uh, it's not just Jews, though, that are streaming into the city. Greeks have shown up as well, Gentiles. They also uh, want to participate in the feast. Uh, But they hear the whispers about Jesus. You will recall that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead recently. Everybody in Jerusalem is talking about this. The Greeks hear about this, presumably, and so they want an introduction. So Andrew and Philip come to Jesus and they say, hey, the Greeks Greeks have come, they want to get to know you. Uh, We're not told if Jesus speaks to the Greeks or not or what happens. Uh, Jesus responds not directly to the Greeks, but to their arrival. Their arrival triggers the arrival, verse 23, of the hour. Up to this point in the Gospel of John, the hour has been future. The hour is still something that's going to happen. It hasn't yet come. It's going to come. But this is a turning point in the Gospel. Now, at last, the hour has come. And that hour is, of course, a reference to the crucifixion, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus. Now the hour is upon them. And the the coming of the outsiders, the Gentiles, the Greeks, triggers in Jesus' mind the arrival of the hour. Now it has come. And this hour is the hour for him to be glorified. 
Uh, Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus' signs or miracles function to reveal him or glorify him. They reveal something fundamental about him. But the ultimate moment of glorification for Jesus is the cross. Not intriguingly just after the cross, his exaltation, but the cross itself is the supreme moment of glorification because it climactically reveals Jesus for who he really is. Jesus is saying, if you want to know what what I'm really like, look at the cross. That is where his goodness and love and grace are fully and climactically revealed. So the hour of his death has come. It's no longer future. And Jesus further explains this in verse 24. uh, As the hour in which he must die, that others might live. He uses an agricultural analogy here. Uh, a grain of wheat has to fall into the ground, it has to be sown, it has to die for it to produce more wheat, uh, to give life to others. And Jesus is using that analogy for himself. He has to lay down his life, he has to go into the grave that others might have life. Uh, There's a contrast here between um, a kind of fruitless self-preservation, so you preserve your life, but no one lives as a result of your self-preservation, and a fruitful self-denial. And Jesus is saying that he's about to undergo a fruitful act of self-denial. He is going to die that others might live. Of course, the amazing truth is that today, if we live, if we have life, it's because Jesus yielded his life for ours. But then in verse 25, Jesus pivots from himself and speaks of his followers and describes the kind of lifestyle that that they are called to and ought to characterize them. Uh, We see this often Uh, in scripture where the work of Jesus is of course for our salvation it's meant to reconcile us to God but the work of Jesus is also a pattern for us it's exemplary the pattern of his life death and resurrection is also the pattern for our life and so in verse 25 Jesus calls his followers to self-denial whoever loses his whoever loves his life loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life There's a contrast here between loving your life and hating your life. And we need to be crystal clear about the fact that hating your life doesn't mean you hate it in an absolute sense. You loathe it. Uh, Hate here is relative. Hate simply means that you love something more than your life, namely the will of God and pleasing him, right? Relative to doing God's will, you hate, as it were, your life. But Jesus isn't calling us to loathe our life. He's calling us to prioritize him and his kingdom. And in that sense, um, we hate our lives. But to to love your life means that you put self first. Self-preservation and self-interest. You put number one first. Uh, You choose comfort, ease, pleasure, money, doing what's best for you instead of hard obedience to Jesus. Put yourself first. Uh, before others. When faced with the choice between your narrow self-interest and doing the will of God, you say, God, my will be done. That's what it means to love life. It's essentially the modern view of the self. Maybe it's an old view as well. To put yourself first, what do I want? How can I maximize pleasure, minimize comfort? That way of thinking. And all those who love their life will finally lose it. This is the great irony. Those who think that they're going to find happiness and joy and contentment by being selfish and doing what they want ultimately lose their life. We see it in this life. Before the grave, they become increasingly more miserable. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis says somewhere, very paradoxically, that to find happiness, you have to aim at something other than happiness. People who aim at happiness never, <laughs> never find happiness. People who aim at something other than happiness, like obeying God and serving others, get happiness thrown in. Happiness has a way of sort of creeping in as you are not focusing on self, but focusing on others. Uh, and so we see the impoverishment that that kind of selfishness produces in this life. But Jesus is not talking about this life. When he speaks of their losing their life, he's talking about eternal loss, eternal separation from God. Those who characteristically and habitually put themselves first, my will be done rather than God's, are going to be finally separated from the life-giving presence of God forever. They will lose life in that ultimate sense. On the other hand, whoever hates his life will keep it for eternal life. To, to hate your life means that you hold the blessings of this life loosely. Comfort, ease, money, pleasure. These are good things. They're given to us by God. But you don't treat them as ultimate things. And when you have to choose between ease and hard obedience, you choose hard obedience. It's more important to obey Jesus with all the sacrifices that come with that obedience than to get your way. That's what it means to hate your life put Jesus first. And those who do that will keep their life for eternal life. In other words, they're going to get that which is truly life. And note the paradox. It's through this self-denial, through this death to self, that we come to experience life. And life in abundance, eternal life. Which in John's gospel includes peace with God, a relationship with God. To be satisfied by his presence, to walk in the certain knowledge of his love. It includes the hope of life in the world to come where all things are made new and the people of God will be resurrected. Those who characteristically reject themselves will have that kind of life. Indeed, at the end of life, verse 26 tells us, they will have the Father's well done. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Those who consistently reject their own narrow self-interest and live for Jesus, at the end of their life, the Father will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You get God's well done. What better thing is there? What, what, what more profound vindication of one's life could there be than to have the creator say, well done. You've lived as you ought to have lived. Now, I want to make something crystal clear. Jesus is not saying that if you do enough self-denial, you get eternal life, as though self-denial merits eternal life. That's anti-gospel. That's anti the message in New Testament. Uh, our moral striving and good works, even our self-denial, doesn't procure God's salvation and acceptance. We can't save ourselves. Only Jesus can save us, and he has done absolutely everything necessary for us to be accepted before God. We simply, we simply receive his gift by faith. We don't do anything to save ourselves. Yet, the sign that we are saved is that we increasingly live more and more for Jesus and less and less for ourselves. The mark of spiritual life is that it's less and less about you and more and more about Jesus and others. So verse 25 is sort of the negative side of the coin. Uh, it's a call to self-denial, to saying no to the self. But we need to be very clear about the fact that Jesus calls us to say no to the self so that we can say yes to him. The point of self-denial is never self-denial as such. Jesus doesn't want us just simply to go around saying no to comfort and ease or whatever. Jesus wants to say no to those things so we can say yes to following him. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. When there's a conflict between the will of Christ 
and your self-interest, the self-interest needs to die so that you can follow Jesus. The point is not simple self-renunciation, but self-renunciation for the fruit of obedience in service to Christ. It's just like that analogy Jesus uses in verse 24. The seed doesn't die for the sake of dying, right? The seed dies for the sake of imparting life to others, for the sake of bearing much fruit. And so the call to self-denial is for the sake of bearing much fruit for the glory of Christ and the good of others. It's never just a negative uh, emphasis as though Jesus wants us to give up things for no higher purpose than just to give them up. No, self-denial is for the sake of serving him. And what that means in practice then, it's called a self-denial, is that we consider not just our own interests, but the interests of others. That's what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Uh, nothing comes more naturally to us than to say, uh, how can things go well for me? How can I maximize my own enjoyment of things? Uh, we are by nature selfish. But Paul is saying, if we, as followers of Christ, we consider not simply our own interests, but we consider how we can be a blessing to others. We look around and we see the burdens that people are carrying, and we come alongside of them and say, hey, how can I take a little bit of your burden and put it on my back so I'm more burdened, but you have relief? That's, that's the pattern of the Christian life. How can I burden myself so that you can have relief? And this kind of self-denial begins in the home. Uh, it begins in the way that we treat people in, our, in the most intimate context. That, that's where our selfishness, I think, is especially conspicuous. Uh, out in public, you know, we know how to behave. We don't want to be viewed as selfish, and so we know how to play the game. But at home, everybody knows who you are, warts and all. Uh, and it's well worth asking, am I the sort of person in the home who's, who's a servant at heart? ready to help others with their burdens, or am I somebody who's always demanding to be served? In his wonderful little book, uh, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges has a chapter on selfishness. It's a great little book, by the way. Sins that often don't make it, you know, that are not on our radar screens. He's good at sort of pinpointing these things. And he talks about how selfishness is expressed in the home, especially among children. He says, oftentimes there is a reluctance to step outside one's normal responsibilities. That's not my job, is, is a response a child may make when asked to do something that's not his usual duty. So children, those who are still in the home, when mom and dad ask you to do something that is not, strictly speaking, part of your chores, do you do it cheerfully? Yes, mom. Yes, dad. Or do you grumble and complain? That's not, my, that's not part of my responsibilities. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do, and it doesn't include that. Like when mom comes in with the the bags of groceries and she's struggling to get the door open, do you just sit and watch from the couch? I hope this works out for mom. Or is it, no, I've got to help mom, right? Is it your impulse to serve, right? To that extent, your impulse is one of self-denial? Or is it just, I know what my responsibilities are and won't take a step beyond that? Children, glorify God through your self-denial and going above and beyond your narrow responsibilities given to you by parents. And then, of course, Bridges goes on to describe the selfishness of adults. Before we say amen too heartily, let's hear what Bridges has to say. Uh, Adults will usually not be so direct, but the selfish person will rarely see the needs of others in the family 
and feel no sense of compassion toward one who seems overwhelmed at the time. There is seldom any expression such as, I'll take care of that for you. When's the last time you said, I'll take care of that for you to your spouse? Let me vacuum the kitchen. Let me put the kids to bed so you can get some rest. I'll take care of that for you. A lot of times we resent the fact that nobody's saying it to us. Isn't that true? I wish they, if they only appreciated how tired I was. They would be offering more than they do to help me. Um, but that's, self-denial begins in the home. It's important to see that. Uh, not, not to have just a very grandiose view of self-denial as something like martyrdom. Of course, that's a, a supreme act of self-denial. But self-denial is also exemplified in those quiet, out-of-the-way places at home where nobody's looking. So self-denial is also needed in the church, not just at home. Uh, for the local church to fulfill its God-given purposes to advance the work of God, it needs members who are prepared to sacrifice time and money, who are ready to volunteer and to serve to advance the work of the church. We need members who are prepared to give generous amounts of time to just praying for the church, because that's where the spiritual power comes from, through prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. Uh, this thing won't work. The unity of the church won't be preserved. God's purposes won't be accomplished unless we are all together committed to a life of self-denial for the accomplishment of his purposes and the advancement of the church's mission. We need uh, self-denial when it comes to difficult people in the church. And there's some people that are very easy to love. You have dinner with them, and they energize you. You know, you, you go away from that dinner whistling, and life is good, right? So people just have that effect on you. Other people drain you, right? They're difficult for one reason or another. And the temptation is to be selfish and to walk away from those people and to say, oh, you know, I'm going to find people that are easier to love, relational green pastures. Uh, but Jesus doesn't just call you to love people who are easy to love. He calls you to love the household of faith, all of your brothers and sisters, including the ones who are difficult. They're, the, one way we exhibit self-denial is by going after those people, befriending them, loving them, inviting them to our home, uh, being willing to be sapped of a certain amount of energy and strength that we might help them grow in Christ. Self-denial in the context of the church also means that sometimes uh, you, you don't get your way and you're, you're okay with it. There, there's a cheerful um, reconciliation to decisions that w wouldn't be exactly the decisions that you would make. There are a million decisions that need to be made, made in the life of the church, right? Uh, from very difficult, high-level decisions to smaller decisions about when we meet, etc. Uh, and almost certainly at some point, the church's leadership is going to make decisions that you would have not made yourself and don't think it's the best course of action. That even happens among the elders, incidentally, right? We have sometimes differences about the right way to go. The crucial thing is how do you respond when the church doesn't do it your way, when you don't get your way? Is there a, a cheerful acceptance of that? Or is there that, the, the grumbling and complaining? You see what they did? You demoralize others as you kind of grumble and complain about the direction of things, right? Self-denial is exhibited in prioritizing the unity of the church, even when you don't get the things that you might think are important and might be valuable. And then self-denial is needed for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. To follow Jesus means that you are helping other people follow Jesus. This is basic to the Christian life. Following Jesus doesn't just mean that you are growing spiritually. Following Jesus means that by one means or another, you are scheming for the spiritual advancement of the people around you. You're, seek to, you're seeking to make Jesus known to the lost one way or another and to help others uh, in the church who may not be as far along as you grow in Christ. To follow Christ is to help other people follow Christ. It's never a selfish life. It's a life 
that spends itself in service to others. Now, of course, there is a, a diversity of gifts and circumstances and seasons of life that affect how exactly any one person does that. Right? If you've got a lot of little children in the home, the main way you're going you're gonna to advance Christ's kingdom is, be, is to invest in those children. You're going to get home early so you can read with them, pray with them, share scripture with them, uh, spend time with them. You're going to pour into them at that season of life. Uh, others of you have the gift of hospitality. You're, the door to your home is a revolving door. People are constantly coming and going. And so you're, you're, you have a knack for serving really good meals and just loving people. And in that context, sharing Jesus. God bless you, continue. Now bring people in and love them. Some of you are very capable organizers and administrators, nocturnal creatures from where I stand. Uh, <laughs> it's not my gift set is what I mean. Uh, but, you know, cap very capable organizers and administrators, they create programs and events that bring people together and uh, cause them to rejoice in one another and in Jesus. Great, keep doing that. Uh, some people are great at generosity. They give money. They give time. Uh, give that. Volunteer. Volunteer in the church. Volunteer uh, wherever you can. Whatever you, your gift is, whatever your circumstances are, all of us, without exception, are called to think about how our lives can contribute to the advancement of Christ's kingdom, how we can be a blessing to others, how the good news can uh, make an impact in the world. So however you're gifted, be clear about what Jesus is calling you to do. And when you understand, okay, this is what Jesus is calling me to do. This is what my gifts are. This is how I'm going to make an impact for the kingdom. Then it's going to become pretty clear what self-denial means. Like as you start getting specific about, okay, as I look at our family and look at how I'm wired, it seems like Jesus is calling me to this. As that becomes clearer to you, then it's also become, going to become clearer where you need to make sacrifices. You might have to give up the occasional uh, weekend night, give up, give up the occasional Saturday night for the sake of meeting with people or whatever. But as you become increasingly clear about how Christ specifically calls you to serve him and advance his kingdom, it's going to be in increasingly clear where perhaps sacrifices and self-denial uh, need to take place. So the first thing that we see in this passage is Christ's call to us to self-denial. But then, more significantly than that, is his self-denial. Our self-denial is nothing compared to the self-denial that he exhibits uh, in the gospel. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. In some ways, that's an uncharacteristic attitude on the part of Christ. He generally knows what he's doing. There's a sense of quiet confidence, but here, as he contemplates the cross, as he stands in the shadow of the cross, he is uncharacteristically perturbed, agitated. He recoils from what is in front of him. All these turbulent emotions crop up in his soul. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Should I ask God to take away this bitter cup that is being extended to me at the cross? No. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. I came into the world not to evade this moment of truth, this final trial. I didn't come to evade it. I came to step directly into it. And so Jesus doesn't here ask let this hour pass. Let it be taken away. He says, Father, glorify your name. For Jesus, the fundamental issue was not self-preservation. 
but doing the will of the Father. And so he says, Father, glorify your name. Just as the Son's glory is revealed climactically at the cross, we learn the truth about Jesus and all of its fullness at the cross, so also we see the truth about the Father at the cross. This is the final moment where God's mercy and love for a sinful and rebellious humanity is going to be displayed. Glorify your name. A voice comes from heaven, have glorified it through Jesus' miracles, and will glorify it again in his crucifixion and exaltation. But the striking thing here is Jesus' turmoil as he looks at what is right in front of him. And we need to recognize that he doesn't shudder at the prospect of the cross because he's threatened by the physical pain and shame of the cross. He recoils at the prospect of his crucifixion because at the cross, he will endure not just physical anguish, but the curse of God on sin. At the cross, Jesus will step into our fate. He will receive what our sins deserve. At the cross, he will endure the pangs of hell and descend into a nightmare that we can't possibly imagine. And that's the point. We'll never know the agony that Christ endures precisely because he endured it, precisely because he took our place and absorbed the unfiltered fury of God toward our sin, we will never have to taste the bitter cup of God's judgment because he did. He alone knows what it's like to be cursed and separated from God on behalf of people like us. So as he contemplates this hour, he's troubled, he's agitated, horrified, he shrinks back. And what we should learn from Jesus' attitude is the horror of our sin, the depth of God's displeasure at our sin. Sometimes we look at sins and we think of sins as comparatively small things. God will forgive. But if you want to know what God thinks of sin, look at the cross. Look at Jesus' attitude. He knows that the price he is going to have, uh, have to pay is incomparably and indescribably great. And he shrinks back from it. The cross is God's verdict on our lives, on our sins. This is what it will take for you to come back to a place of blessing. There are no small sins in the sight of a great God. And the cross bears witness to that. The anguish of Christ bears witness to that. We need to be a lot more sober about our disobedience against Christ and to Christ than we sometimes are. Think about what it cost to bring us out of that judgment. The price caused Christ to shudder and recoil. Here's how one older commentator put it. Commenting on this passage, he says, from this we learn the enormity of sin for which the heavenly father exacted so dreadful a punishment from his only begotten son. So we must learn that death was no pastime or game to Christ, but that he was cast into the severest torments for our sake. Think about that phrase, severest torments for our sake. When we see what Jesus endured to bring us back to God to pay for our sins, we won't have a shallow view of disobedience. Neither will we have a shallow view of the work of Christ. Sometimes when we're not thinking clearly, we think of it almost as a kind of 
impersonal transaction. Jesus came, he died, he rose again, and we have forgiveness. But what we neglect in that glib formula is the toll that it took on Christ. Uh, what it cost him to bring us life. So here we see the self-renunciation and denial of Jesus for our sake. A self-denial and a self-renunciation we will never experience the way that he did. And finally, third, notice the result of his self-denial. Jesus goes on and describes the consequences of what he will do. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. The reference to ruler of this world is a reference to Satan. Uh, one of the ways that scripture characterizes the saving work of Jesus is as a battle between God's appointed warrior and Satan. In fact, it's interesting, in Scripture, the first announcement of the gospel in Genesis 3 is given in terms of a struggle between the seed of a woman, ultimately Christ, and the serpent. And we see this struggle unfolding throughout the pages of the Old Testament. But this struggle reaches its high point in the gospels. Have you ever noticed how much time is devoted in the gospels to Jesus freeing people from demonic powers? The point is, in those miracles, and those exorcisms, the point is that the world's true king has come on the scene. And he is now liberating humanity from the tyranny of Satan. He is taking back what belongs to him. And the final moment of victory over Satan is the cross. The reason Satan has authority and power over mankind is because of our guilt before God. Because of our guilt, we have been subjected to, the, to evil powers. But at the cross, Jesus Christ takes away our guilt and therefore the claim that Satan has over us. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that our debts were nailed to the cross. Our moral debt was nailed to the cross and it died with Christ. And as a result, the principalities, the powers of darkness, Satan has been disarmed. But it's that removal of guilt that destroys his authority over mankind and frees us from his sway and causes us to be able to live for the glory of God. At the cross, Satan is decisively defeated and the gates of hell will now not prevail against the church. The gospel message will envelop the world. It will expand. Satan will not defeat it. Uh, Christ will triumph. The moment of his defeat is at hand. Okay, so that states the matter negatively. Satan is about to be defeated his power is about to be broken but positively when i am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself when i am glorified i am going to draw greeks like those who came to talk to jesus and jews and chinese and people all over the world i'm going to draw my people in when i'm exalted my death is not in vain my death will conquer the devil my death will draw a people to me the people of God. It will be a glorious triumph. We need to recognize that. As we do the work that Christ has called us to do to advance his kingdom, whatever that looks like for you, we need to do so with a sense of confidence and expectation. Jesus has defeated Satan. He is certainly going to draw every single one of his people to himself. 
And therefore, when we engage in work of advancing the kingdom, there should be a sense of expectation that Christ is victorious, and therefore our sacrifices for the kingdom aren't in vain. This is not pointless suffering. This, what we're doing for Jesus is going to bear fruit because of his victory. We don't want to be triumphalistic on the one hand, overconfident, and pretend like it's easy. There is real opposition to the work of Christ in the world. There is suffering and pain. So we don't want to give a false a picture of the Christian life. There is pain and sorrow, but we also don't want to be fatalistic. We never expect anything. We're just going to go through the motions and nothing will really happen. No, Christ has defeated Satan. He will draw his people and he will use the church to accomplish his purposes. So there should be a sense of expectation as we do the work he's called us to do to advance his kingdom. Well, the crowd hears Jesus speaking about indirectly at least, his, his departure, his death, and they say, how is that possible? The, the Messiah, Messiah you know, remains forever. What are you talking about? And interestingly, Jesus doesn't directly address their question. At this point, things are too serious and the time is too short to engage in theological discussion. There's an urgency to Jesus' words. The light is among you for a little while longer. Verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. The time of his departure from this world is at hand. We've seen in John's gospel how Jesus is the light of the world. He fully and perfectly reveals God to the world. Um, In him we see what God is really like. But that light is about to depart. He is going to leave them. And therefore Jesus is very urgent. It's imperative he's, he's saying to them that you believe in the light. The opportunity to believe won't last forever. The light has been among you and is going to be with you just a little bit longer. Now, today, this moment is the time to believe in the light. There's an urgency. If you don't, you will perish. You'll be engulfed in the darkness of God's judgment and eternal separation from him. Now is the time to believe. Now is the time to be reconciled. And that same urgency should characterize our response to the gospel whenever it's heard. Whenever you hear about Jesus, if you don't know where you are in your relationship with him, uh, don't deceive yourself into thinking, well, that's something I'll look at in more detail later. I've got time. You don't know that you've got time. You don't know how many more times you will hear the good news about Jesus Christ. Today is the day to believe. Today is the day of salvation. How do you know that there's going to be another opportunity for you to trust in Jesus as your Savior? So don't think that I have time to analyze and reflect and we'll see what happens. That, that same urgency that Jesus exhibited to, the, exhibited to the original audience, he exhibits to you today. Come today and believe and find life. If you've been coming to CBC regularly for a period of time and you're sort of intrigued by this, but you've not committed your life to Jesus, the message for you is clear. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, glorify your name and that of the Father by granting life to any who might be in this place who don't know you as their Savior. Draw them that your name might be exalted, that we might rejoice, and that they might have eternal life. Work in our midst, we ask. Cause your truth to expand our hearts so that we are increasingly marked by a devotion to you and others, a selflessness. Work in our midst, we ask. Amen.